Christians are supposed to be Christ-like, just as the name implied from when it was originally used in the first century, right up to our own postmodern world today. It's as simple as WWJD, right? Wrong. Join our show host, teacher, servant leader, and fellow traveler, Steve Russell, as we journey together in learning how lives daily renewed by God's grace and power can embrace Christian living that counts and makes a difference in a broken world. Hey, welcome to our show today. This is Steve Russell, host of Christian Living That Counts. We are renewed lives making a difference in a broken world. Glad you joined us again. Uh, we're excited today about about something. We never wanted the show to really be a Bible study. I'm not, I'm not trying to duplicate anybody's uh, uh, Bible studies out there because goodness knows uh, in some parts of the world you can never turn your radio dial and, and lose one. They're just constant. And so I didn't really intend to create another Bible study, but when you're talking about Christian living that counts, obviously you're going to do some Bible study because the Bible's the handbook for Christians. But Sunday morning, I was going through my newspaper and trying to discard the ads. It didn't have coupons I was interested in very quickly and just get those out of the way and on into the recycle bin. And I read across an ad that said how to understand the Bible. And then right across it was a big yellow dot that said free. Well, they hit me on two, on two fronts there. I, I, I was interested immediately in anything that helps me understand the Bible. And then free does what it always does. It attracts your attention. So I pulled this coupon out, and I thought, well, I'll give these guys a try. Well, that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, I chased it out a little bit. You know, one of the things, anytime you look at an ad, especially about something in, in a religious nature, uh, you have to you have to kind of look and see who's behind it. You know, who's saying something or who's writing something uh, has a whole lot to do with the way you should understand it. Well, I did a little bit of investigation, as I said. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. But it intrigued me with the title, How to Understand the Bible. And I bet there's probably 10 brochures, books, and all kinds of things out there by that name, or if not by that name, by something very close to that name. But it occurred to me uh, to come at it a little bit differently and kind of inspired me to want to do something. And I'm calling it, for our purposes of our show today, we're going to call it Common Misunderstandings About the Bible. And I want to go through just a few of those and elaborate on them a little bit because I do think that they make a big difference. Nobody wants to open any kind of how-to book and misunderstand it. Uh, I've learned from the internet, you can do almost anything. If you're willing to open up a recipe and look for it, uh, even if you have absolutely no culinary skills such as uh, are absent from my repertoire, and even if you're not that great a mechanic, if you're willing to go in there and go step by step and understand what you're doing and take the time to do it, you can do just about anything. But it's very frustrating not to understand something. So it would be terribly frustrating, I would think, for Christians and certainly seekers, people who are looking into the Christian faith, to misunderstand the Bible. So if you'll indulge me today, I want to uh, discuss a few of the common misunderstandings about the Bible. The first one I jotted down is very simply the Bible can be easily understood. That's just not true. There are parts of the Bible that are very difficult to understand, and it has a lot to do with the approach a person makes to the Bible. I think the Bible needs to be approached with an humble and awesome reverence, kind of a sense of mystery and even the mystical. I, I, it requires a, a cautious and careful study and, and scholarship to truly understand the Bible. So the fact that it's easy just to flop open the book, uh, turn to any page, read something, and fully grasp it uh, is probably not adequate at all to truly understand the Bible. The Bible's a living book. Uh, that means that it can be returned to over and over again, and, and the reader will always come away with a new and fresh observation and, and insight uh, almost every time they go. You know, there's, a, there's an old maxim about the Bible that uh, some people discard as irrelevant and some people embrace. It, it goes something like this. The Bible doesn't always say what it means, and the Bible doesn't always mean what it says, but the Bible always means what it means. You know, and some people think, well, that's just circular statements. Uh, it doesn't really mean anything. But the more I ponder it, uh, when I come back to that, 
I, I, I think that, that it's true. And so what you have to, to do, what you're tasked with, is literally finding the meaning that isn't always right there on the surface in what it says. So uh, I like that. I think the Bible always means what it means. And then the challenge is to approach the Bible as often as possible with that humility and awe and reverence for this Christian handbook for living, especially if you want a kind, the kind of life that inspired the title of this internet radio show, show Christian Living That Counts. Uh, we all want to count. We all want our Christian lives to count. And so, again, the Bible being the handbook, it's worth the time and effort and scholarship to approach it wisely and carefully and with great humility and reverence. I think the warning here uh, is simply not to treat the Bible with a common familiarity, believing you can just pick it up uh, anytime, open it to any passage, and know exactly what it means. Uh, giving the Bible a great deal of respect while being very humble about what you or I think we know uh, is always a safe approach. It's not to say that, that even a passing glance uh, at any scripture might not bring some spontaneous inspiration or insight or comfort, but again, uh, that, that's got one purpose, but to gain in-depth meaning and understanding certainly will require more than casual sporadic encounters. If we imagine for a moment the Bible is sort of a treasury of wealth, and you and I are approaching the keeper of this treasure to ask for a withdrawal for our own use and possession, we wouldn't run in and say, give me some money, and run out with what little we could grab. And I think we would be more prepared to spend a little while collecting all we could. And if we look at the Bible as such a treasury of life-empowering information for the Christian, you and I would want to spend all the time we have to collect all the riches we can carry off, even though that we can come back to the treasury as often as we want. So, first common misunderstanding about the Bible would be that it's easily understood. That's simply not true. It requires an humble, reverent approach and a sense of study and scholarship to truly understand what the Bible means when it means what it means. Let's look at a second one. Another common misunderstanding about the Bible is the assumption that all the passages of the Bible should and can be equally understood. Again, that's simply not true. In fact, some people might become even so discouraged that there are difficult passages in the Bible and they seem beyond understanding. They'll just not have anything at all to do with the Bible. If I don't understand all of it, well, what good is understanding part of it? It's kind of like being given a good book to read, but you're warned. Now, there may be several pages missing. Do you want to take a chance that the missing pages are important ones and you might miss the end of the story or something? So the people just say, hey, well, I don't think I want to read a book if there might be pages missing. But the Bible doesn't work like that. If you'll allow me to go back to the idea of the Bible as a treasury, suppose if someone said, well, I can't give you all the $10 million I have, but I could give you $5 million. Would you, if you were living payday to payday, would you say, well, if I can't have all $10 million, I just won't take any of it? Really? Well, I don't think so. I certainly wouldn't. I'm guessing most of us would be very happy to receive half the total treasury of a person if they offered it, or especially in this case, the illustration of $5 million. Sure, I'd take five, despite the fact that I'd have to leave five behind. So that's how we should receive the Bible's treasury for Christian living, I think. Let's take all we can get. We doesn't mean we're going to get everything, but let's take all we can get. One of our founding fathers of the United States and our third president, Thomas Jefferson, created what became known and still available today as the Jefferson Bible. Late in his long and honorable life, he actually cut out with a razor passages from the Gospels and glued them in a manner satisfactory to himself into an entirely new book. The Jefferson Bible is often noted because Jefferson carefully omitted references to all the miracles or the supernatural works that are described, including Christ's resurrection. Jefferson saw himself as just too scientific a man 
for such an unbelievable and unnatural nonsense? Well, the Bible and the science is a discussion for another day. But if you have even the partial courage of Jefferson, or maybe it's pardonable audacity that you need, I would suggest an experiment to you. Go to a thrift store somewhere and find a reasonable translation of the Bible in a paperback version. It'll probably cost you something between three and a quarter. Then try to systematically read through as much of that Bible as you can. And here comes the hard part, some of you who are bibliolaters. That's a long word for those who create an idol out of a stack of paper and print. But if you can, again, with some sense of audacity, as you're reading through that Bible, just strike out any of the meanings which you don't absolutely and clearly understand beyond the shadow of a doubt. Just strike them out. Take a pencil or pen, whatever it takes, marker, and just just strike those out. You don't understand what it means, so strike it out. That's perfectly all right. Now, again, some of you will have trouble with that because, oh, you're damaging God's Word and so forth. Just follow the experiment here. When you're done, even if you've struck out 95% of the words of the 66 books of the typically Protestant Bible, just try to live by the 5% you got left. If you're able to do and live by just that 5%, I will be willing to bet that you are living a dynamic and empowered Christian life that counts. See, it's real easy to say, well, I don't believe in that flood thing and that guy being swallowed by a big fish thing and that being raised from the dead thing. So I just won't believe anything. But is there anyone who doesn't understand the clarity of love your enemies or love your neighbor as yourself? Is there anyone who doesn't understand that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil? Those things are fairly clear. When we come back, we'll take a look at those things that are clear and how we can live a Christian life that counts according to those things remaining. We'll return in a moment with host Steve Russell and Christian Living That Counts. I want to tell you about the special underwriting sponsor of Christian Living That Counts. This is show host Steve Russell to introduce you to the Preford family of Mount Pleasant, Texas. Preford Manufacturing was founded by the late Marvin Preford, a born inventor who moved his growing business to the heart of cattle country in Northeast Texas in 1962. Since then, Preford Manufacturing has become the leader in the highest quality of farm, ranch, and rodeo equipment, employing over 800 people and shipping their products worldwide. Bill Preford, Marvin's son, assumed the leadership of the company in 1988 after the unexpected passing of his father, Marvin. Today, under their dad's watchful eye, the third generation of Bill's sons, Eddie, Nate, and Travis are carrying on the family tradition and business, including the Christian faith that they quickly credit with much of their success and growth. I'm proud to call the Preferts friends and appreciate their making the internet radio broadcast of Christian Living That Counts possible. Learn more about this dedicated Christian family and their outstanding business at prefert.com. That's P-R-I-E-F-E-R-T dot com. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts, your host, Steve Russell. We're back and we're discussing common misunderstandings about the Bible. If you've just joined us, I made the statement earlier that we don't want this show to become a Bible study. There are abundant Bible study radio shows out there and probably every kind of possible network. So we don't want to do that, but since the Bible is a handbook for Christian living that counts, we certainly can't ignore a good knowledge of the Bible and what it takes to understand it correctly. So I had cited the first common misunderstanding that the Bible is easy to understand. And we had brought out the fact that it takes a humble and awesome reverent approach of scholarship and time and effort to truly understand what the Bible means. 
So it's a common misunderstanding that it can be easily understood. We moved on to a second one, and that is that all the passages of the Bible should and could be easily understood. This, again, is a common misunderstanding about the Bible. All the passages and all the obscure references in the Bible to things that we have no idea truly what uh, anyone is talking about, what the writer was talking about, we are sometimes separated Uh, Well, in fact, we're always separated by thousands of years with anything in the Bible, even the latest writings in the New Testament. We now can assume that they were about almost 2,000 years old. So due to the culture and the historical changes uh, that have occurred uh, in the different parts of the world, the translations, the different, um, um, all the types of different things that have have made our world entirely different in 21st century than the last words of the Bible in the first century A.D., uh, uh, we've got some things we don't understand. So it's, it's not unusual for people to think, well, all the passages of the Bible should be and could be equally understood. Simply not true. I challenge people to follow the example somewhat of Thomas Jefferson, who struck passages from the New Testament that he didn't like and uh, that he didn't agree with and thought he was too scientific a man to understand. And and uh, he cut and pasted the, the leftovers into what has become known popularly as the Jefferson Bible. Uh, along that, that line of thinking, I challenge people who are willing to to find an inexpensive copy of the Bible and to strike through any parts of the Bible that they don't understand that is difficult for them. In Jefferson's case, it was passages with which he disagreed. In this case, I'm asking you to strike the ones you don't understand. I suggested that even if you had 5% of the Bible left, you would still be uh, challenged to make your life line up with the ethical teachings um, and the other clearly understood passages uh, that are left in, in the remaining portion after you struck all those things that you didn't understand. I don't want you to to be unfair. Uh, Don't do like Jefferson. I don't want you striking out the things that you don't believe or the things you don't think are possible. Uh, For goodness sake, don't mark out the things that you just don't like. Um, Mark out the things that you absolutely and clearly don't understand. And this will leave you again with some portion that I think the clarity uh, of those portions are going to still be a very challenging life. Uh, you're left with a standard of ethical and moral teaching that you and I cannot live up to, but can only aspire to constantly, and so we should. We shouldn't be guilty of thinking that the Bible is equally clear and understandable, or even that it should be. All the Bible may not be understood, but parts that can be understood are clear and challenging as we try to live a Christian life that counts. To move on to a third common misunderstanding uh, about the Bible, and this one uh, is one I I enjoy sharing with people because I think think it's very, very important today. In fact, if someone were to ask me what's the most serious misunderstanding about the Bible, I would say that it is a failure to understand the variety of literatures and writing styles, or to use a word from my university English major, the diverse genres of the Bible. When you, I'm, I'm actually, I have my Bible open here in front of me to just the table of contents, <clears throat> something that people who are very familiar with the Bible may not frequent, uh, but sometimes it's necessary. But I've got it open to a table of contents because I just want to glance down and look briefly for you at the types of genres that might be here. I'm looking at uh, beginning in Genesis. I'll wind up in the book of Revelation. And somewhere in the early books of the Old Testament, we see everything from the possibility of of mythology. Uh, We have um, a record of law-giving, something as as in the other parts of the ancient world might have been found in Hammurabi's code. Uh, We can see uh, a census taken, um, additional law-giving. We see some history. Uh, We see some uh, heroic literature. Uh, we see a sprinkling in here of, uh, of a historical and romantic story uh, of a young woman who became a queen. 
Um, then we have uh, more seemingly historical books as it tracks the, um, the people, God's people in, in uh, the form of the Israelites as they come into their kingdoms. And uh, we see here even the word chronicles. Well, if we see chronicles, whether it be the chronicles of Narnia or any other kind of chronicles, uh, from the same root word as chronology, we know we're getting a historical presentation. Then it moves on in uh, to even more recent, by our standards of distance, um, some history. Uh, we see some some wisdom literature. We even see songs in the in the form of of psalms that uh, could have been set to music, and often even in some translations, the musical designations are given. Uh, we see an, an, an additional splattering of, of uh, wisdom literature here with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then we see a very erotic literature in the, in the Song of Solomon. Then we move into prophetic literature, all these being different genres, different types of literature, which means that when words are said in music and in song, they shouldn't be taken the same way as they are when they're said in a historical content or in a prophetic content and context. And so all these things change. The same words used in the different content and context have different meanings. Moving right along from prophecy, we move to apocalyptic type of literatures that um, are very mysterious and mystical. Uh, then back into prophecy. Um, and interestingly enough here, a couple of prophets, just glancing at them, Ezekiel and Hosea, both men not only wrote in a prophetic style, but they were actually act, uh, asked to live out and were inspired to live out symbolic acts so that it isn't just written symbolism that you find often in prophecy, but it, it was, it, these two men were, were asked and called out to live out certain examples and demonstrations of this. So very, very interesting, but again, very different books. And then a number of different prophetic literatures, and, and I think it's worth mentioning here, some people think uh, you would want a prophecy, a prophet beside you if you were buying a lottery ticket, and uh, he or she might help you pick the numbers. I think if you read the biblical literature very carefully, a prophet is not one who picks numbers and tells you what cards you're going to cut to or what the dice are going to roll or what the lottery numbers are going to be. They're not always predictive. In fact, I think prophet, prophets are overwhelmingly declarative. They seem to be people who look into circumstances and situations, and they see them as God sees them. For example, in, uh, you might look into Jeremiah. Jeremiah sees a people who live the way they want to and then show up at church uh, back then in his day, the temple, and they have sort of an empty, false religion. So they live one way, and they worship as though their living were as righteous as their worship. Jeremiah sees this, he sees through it, and he warns them constantly. In fact, in one chapter, he's told to stand at the door of the temple and cry out, right there as you're coming into church, the condemnation of the emptiness of their religion. And so this prophet is able to see the circumstances in the situation, and he sees it as God sees it, and therefore he declares it to the people and, uh, in hopes that they will repent of the emptiness of their faith and their religion. So he is a he is a foreteller more than a foreteller, and I think this this is a, a common misunderstanding specifically about about prophecy. So uh, we have these these list of people who who do a lot more foretelling and a lot more warning uh, and cautionary declarations to the people about their lifestyles and so forth uh, as we move on through the Old Testament. Then just to, to turn over to the content page of the New Testament, you get another uh, variety of literatures. In fact, right, right up at the top of, of my contents page of the New Testament says the Gospels, which are of themselves a particular type of literature. And then most scholars who have done much study realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are part of what are called the synoptic gospels, the origin of that word synoptic meaning seen through the same eye. Uh, in fact, many of those gospels were used as sources for the others. And then there's the fourth gospel, 
in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. Uh, John stands apart from the synoptics and seems to have been written uh, with a strategy in mind um, of, of defense, a, 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 a sort of a, 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 a letter or a gospel, I should say, written in defense of a particular system of beliefs and, uh, and against another system of beliefs. So John's gospel stands out and stands apart uh, from the other three. But the gospels themselves are a type of literature. Then when you come down into the Acts of the Apostles, here you have a, a very historical relation, uh, relatedness of, of uh, how the gospel, uh, I'm sorry, how the, the Acts are written. The Acts are actually the Acts of the Apostles, and so they are the actions the Apostles took essentially after the ascension of Jesus. When he's taken out of the world, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Then what happens to the guys that remain, and especially to Paul, the later apostle? When we come back, we'll pick up with those acts and go through the New Testament. Stay with us for more Christian Living That Counts, back in a moment with host Steve Russell. Many Christians worry about how to share their faith. They even feel guilty about not sharing. Hi, this is Steve Russell, host of Christian Living That Counts on toginet.com. Christians sharing their faith feel awkward and bothersome sometimes. But my friend Bobby Bateman has a unique way to break the ice and open the door for a casual conversation. Join us soon for the interview with Bobby about his unique idea or learn more now at his website. It's personal to us. Once again, that website is itspersonaltous.com. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts, your host, Steve Russell. Welcome back, and if you just joined us, we're talking today about common misunderstandings about the Bible. We're... uh, We've looked at at three, and I want to quickly relate those to you. The first one I said was that the Bible can be easily understood. That is a common misunderstanding. The Bible requires a very humble and awesome, reverent approach with diligent scholarship to really get the meaning of what the Bible means. And then we also talked about a misunderstanding that some people have that they think all the Bible should be equally understood. That is not true either. Uh, Some parts of the Bible are quite clear. Some of the Bible passages are very unclear. I challenged everyone to simply live by the clear passages, and they'd have all that their lifetime uh, would need uh, to be challenging. And then the one we're looking at currently is the fact that uh, some people have a misunderstanding because they think the Bible is a singular literature type. That is, that is absolutely untrue um, and, and a, a very dangerous misunderstanding, which I will probably dwell on for the remainder of the show because I want to, to give you some examples and, and uh, some pitfalls of how this, this can work out. But the Bible is, in fact, a rich um, uh, genre, collection of genres of different types of literature. We were going through in, in the studio here, my Bible is open, and I was opening it oddly to the table of contents, just going through and identifying some possible literary differences. And we'd gotten down into the New Testament beyond the Gospels, which are their own literary type, to the Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story basically of what happened to the remaining believers and those who continued to believe as a result of those believers uh, after Jesus was no longer on, on the earth and present in his bodily form. And uh, so we, we looked at that and realizes, we realized that that is a very specific type of genre which relates historical uh, events as they, as they occurred. They, again, deal with the very early first century church, moving right on into a large part of the journeys of the Apostle Paul as he spread the gospel throughout uh, Asia and on into to Europe. And um, then there's a very large segment, segment of the New Testament made up of Paul's letters that he wrote under a variety of circumstances for a variety of reasons. We uh, 
kind of in biblical language call these the epistles, but more appropriately for modern uh, times, we would just simply say the letters of Paul. Uh, and so I'm looking here at the books like Romans and, a, and a, an original letter to the Corinthians and then a second letter to the Corinthians that may actually have been four different letters or more that were compiled. And then uh, probably Paul's first letter that he ever wrote that we have extant, and that being a letter to the Galatians. And then other locations. And Paul would often write these churches as he approached them, these assemblies of believers, or he would uh, write them after he had left as sort of a follow-up to the work he'd done there. And we see Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and two letters to the churches at Thessalonica called Thessalonians, and then to some of his apprentices, such as Timothy, two letters to Timothy and to Titus, and then one letter, very uh, short letter, uh, we call Philemon, which was Paul's request and sort of uh, guilt-tripping uh, one of his friends about a runaway servant and making the case for the restoration of this servant. Uh, then we have a letter to the Hebrews. Uh, the authorship is still, by most scholars, considered largely unknown. But um, again, just glancing here, gospels, uh, historical material, letters, and now a general letter uh, written by James, uh, most scholars believe to be the brother of Jesus, a general letter to the church in general, and then two written from, uh, from most scholars, again, believe the hand of Peter, and then possibly three letters from the Apostle John. Then we have a very obscure and one of those very difficult uh, books, which uh, when I challenged you to strike through, if you want to strike through this entire book, um, uh, you, you might want to say, I don't understand that. And it's a very short one-chapter book uh, in the New Testament called the, uh, Jude. And then the last book of the Bible may be the most mysterious and mystical of all, but uh, often uh, the food for much conversation and controversy, the Revelation. The book opens with a Greek word in the original Greek language, which we have it extant, apocalypsis. That literature tells itself right up front what type of literature you're about to, to read. You're about to read apocalyptic literature. And no literature is more difficult to understand than highly symbolic literature, which is heavily characteristic of apocalyptic literature. I often hear people say, uh, well, you know, the Bible teaches that. And I might ask them, well, where does it teach that? And they say, Revelation. And I'm thinking, well, you just picked probably the most difficult to understand book of the Bible, and you're staking your belief system on it. And then they, I might ask, well, is there anywhere that, that evidence of that book is corroborated in the Bible? And they might go to Daniel. I said, okay, well, you've picked two of the most difficult to understand and obscure books of, of the Bible, heavily symbolic and heavily open to interpretation of the apocalyptic symbols that are in those books. And so um, a lot of people, again, find this intriguing Contra, uh, conversation and controversy, but I would hate to think that people would go to the most difficult to understand parts of any book uh, and and base their, their belief system on that, but it's not infrequent that they do. Uh, in, in, the, in the collection of literatures here that we've seen in the Bible, and once again, just to run through the New Testament, the Gospels, the history historical chronology of the Acts of the Apostles in the early church, then the series of letters, whether they be very specific to Paul's churches he was approaching or following up upon, or whether it was uh, to specific people, whether it was general epistles. As we look through that, we, we see a variety of literatures. If you do not understand the type of literature that you are reading, the chances are very strong that you will not understand the meaning of what you are reading. I remember a, a famous uh, Baptist in Texas once wrote a book, and I believe I have the title correct, uh, called I Believe the Bible is Literally True. The problem with that is that in the mix of these different literatures, we find metaphor and simile. We find parable and symbolism, all different types of tools, literary tools that the writers used. 
I'd like to think God uh, in his om, om, omniscience and, and uh, otherwise um, uh, just absolutely in, inexplicable intelligence is capable of using a variety of literatures. And, and I personally believe that he did that in the Bible. So I look to the Bible as a colorful variety, not as a single um, literature. And so it is filled with these metaphors and similes and symbolisms and parables and different things that we have to understand their context and their content and the type of literature to, to grasp those. Let me give you a, a, a real simple example of that. Um, if I were to give you a phone book and a dictionary, uh, phone books are almost obsolete these days, everybody using cell phones, but they're still around. You know, they're the ones with the advertising pages and everybody's home phone and the business phones and so forth. And we all still vaguely know what they are, but I'm sure there's a younger generation coming on that won't. But if I were to give you a phone book and a dictionary, and then I said, take the phone book and look up the definition of egalitarian. You know, that's one of those words that only George Will uses to when he wants to sell more dictionaries. But if you, if you don't know that word, and I would say, look up the definition of egalitarian in the phone book. Well, you'd look across the table at me and you'd say, well, I'm not sure that's the right choice of books here. You gave me a phone book and a dictionary. Why wouldn't you want me to look up the phone number? Um, or the, the definition in, in the dictionary. Why are you telling me to go to the phone book? Well, okay, well, well let, let's do this. Go to the dictionary and look up someone's home phone number. And you'd look at me equally quizzically, I think, and say, why, why do you want me to do that? Why wouldn't you want me to use the appropriate book for what it was intended? That's my question about the literature of the Bible. Why wouldn't you want to understand the type of book or passage that you're reading before you misuse it. Because I'll tell you right now, if you're looking up egalitarian in the phone book, unless that's somebody's last name, you're going to have trouble finding it. If you're looking up egalitarian, if you're looking up a phone number, on the other hand, in the dictionary, you're going to be tough to find anything other than possibly the publishing company's number of that dictionary. You've got to know the literature and its type before you can use it properly and certainly before you can understand its meaning. So just as absurdly, many people go to the Bible without understanding the type of literature, and they try to understand the meaning. They're not going to have much success. I said a minute ago that uh, a very famous gentleman in my, my own state of Texas, in fact, had written a book, I believe the Bible is literally true. If you believe the, the Bible is literally true and you go to a parable of Jesus, for example, the par parable we often refer to as the prodigal son, and Jesus starts out, a certain man had two sons. Well, the literalist already has his hands up in the back of the room. And he's saying, uh, hey, uh, what was that man's name? Uh, and uh, by the way, do you have his two sons' names? Uh, where were they from? Uh, how, how old were those boys? And I would like to think that Jesus would look mercifully on that person. I might look scornfully, but I'd like to believe he'll look mercifully and say, it's not a, really man. It's not a real man. It, it, it's, it's a story that I'm giving you to teach a lesson. I'm throwing this story alongside the truth I want to teach, and it's a parable. There's not really a certain man and a certain two sons with names. Just bear with me here and let me finish the story. So he would continue the story. But... Immediately, again, the literalist might walk away and say, well, if it's not literally true, if there's not a name for this man and his sons, how can it be true? Well, when we come back, we'll talk about exactly how a parable can be very true. We'll return in a moment for our final segment of Christian Living That Counts. Hey friends, this is Steve Russell, host of Christian Living That Counts. I want to introduce you to my friend David Taylor. He's celebrating his 35th anniversary as a financial advisor. David is a CPA and has recently written a book to answer the need of so many ladies who came to his office after the passing of their husbands. Often they knew nothing of their financial details or status. David's book is called The Comprehensive Widow's Survival Guide. Be listening for my interview with David soon and learn how you can get your copy of The Comprehensive Widow's Survival Guide. 
Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts, your host, Steve Russell. Welcome back to the last segment of today's show. Our show is called Christian Living That Counts. We're renewed lives trying to make a difference in a broken world. Today we're talking about the Bible and the proper understanding of it and how it can be easily misunderstood. Once again, in every segment I've said this, but I want to repeat it. I'm not intending this show to be a Bible study, but it's certainly important for Christian living that counts to properly understand the Bible. So we're going over a list of misunderstandings. I won't recount all those that we've done in the previous segments today, but I will ask you uh, to pick up with me where we left off. We were looking at the idea of different tools, the very colorful tools that that, uh, the Bible contains in terms of literary expression and differences in genre. We just got down to the illustration of a parable that Jesus used frequently uh, as a tool for teaching a truth he wanted to teach. And he would open his his story and he would talk about the one we we referenced in the previous segment was the, the prodigal son and how people who believe that the Bible is literally true. When Jesus started out and said a certain man had two sons, the literalist would want to pop and say, now, now Jesus, tell me the, that man's name and tell me those sons' names, and then, then I'll understand who you're talking about. And again, I hope Jesus would very mercifully and, and, um, and compassionately have replied to those people, well, this is really a story I'm, I'm making up to go along with the truth I want to teach. It's, there's really not a man, and he really doesn't have two sons. Just follow with me here for a little bit and see if you get the truth out of the story. Um, Jesus said at one point in a parable, a sower went out to sow. And he tells the parable we refer to, the parable of the sower and the soils. Again, the literalist might have wanted to say, to Jesus, wait a minute, where, where was this farm? And, 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 and tell me exactly where this occurred and what this sower's name was. That's not what's required to understand the meaning of this story. Parable didn't literally happen. There wasn't a literal sower, although there were sowers everywhere. There wasn't one he was particularly referring to who happened to be uh, within the purview of four different types of soil so he could lend credibility to Jesus' story. That's not at all what's going on here. Jesus is using a very symbolic tool we call a parable to cast a story alongside to enhance the truth that he's trying to teach. So I would warn us about that. A A certain man went down, Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Once again, the literalist, give me that man's name. Give me those names of those thieves. Were they charged? Have they been captured? And so on and so on. This is not the purpose of the story. So again, the great warning here of this common misunderstanding of the, of the Bible is that it is literally true and it can be seen with its vast variety of genres and literary tools as only one singular type of literature that you can simply flop open and propose to understand without understanding the type of literature that is encompassed in that. Uh, In the previous segment, I I talked a little bit about using a phone book uh, to try to look up definitions of words and a dictionary to look up phone numbers. We both realize, uh, all any listener out there, um, considering you as my audience, any listener out there reasonably understands that you are not to use a dictionary to find phone numbers. You're not to use a phone book to find definitions. But somehow we have reduced the Bible to being a singular type of literature, and that is a terrible misunderstanding of it. So think about the different things that, that uh, appear, the different types of literature and tools that appear throughout the Bible. This, I believe, to be the single most crucial misunderstanding. What I mean by that is people who totally misinterpret what the Bible has to say and what the Bible means uh, in truth is simply because they don't uh, understand the type of literature that is being expressed by the writer. So, um, having said that, let, let's let, let's recap for a moment uh, just the things that have been said today. First misunderstanding was that the Bible can be easily understood. Not so. It needs diligent scholarship, and it needs to be approached with humble and awesome reverence. A second thing that we looked at was that the, all the passages of the Bible— 
should be equally and can be equally understood. That's a common second misunderstanding about the Bible. Those things are simply not true. Uh, Parts of the Bible are easily understood. Parts of the Bible are separated by history and culture over thousands of years, and we may never understand uh, in this side of eternity what those passages mean. So we're not to be afraid of those of, of what we can understand about the Bible. Rather, mo- more importantly, we're to take the things that we can understand very clearly and live them as diligently as possible, and we still will have plenty to, to give us a lifetime of aspiration and challenges as we try to live up to the things that we do know and clearly understand about the Bible. And then the last one, the one we've talked about at some length, that I believe to be the most important uh, thing that we do not want to misunderstand about the Bible, and that's the importance of understanding um, what type of literature the Bible is is embracing when we read it. Uh, you can go all the way back um, into Genesis, and there is great scientific and, and a scholarly debate over whether the account of Genesis is a scientific account, and if it is, is the world 6,000 years old, or is it 6 billion years old? And then, and this, this comes full circle to, once again, what type of literature? But I would ask the question, if we will open up ourselves to the possibilities of different literatures, does it really matter? Does it really matter? Is it, does, it, does, does not the Bible say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? And if we don't have his exact blueprint there, if we have a mythological representation of how God did it, is it any less God's world and God's universe because of that? I I, I personally don't think so. So I can get along with the people who say, well, it's a literal scientific account, although I happen not to believe that. I believe it is a highly symbolic, but we all come back to the fact that this world is God's world created primarily for his pleasure, and so on. We can go to the story of the flood. Was it Gilgamesh? Was it Noah? Are there multiple floods? Was there one? Is there scientific um, evidence in the strata of the soils throughout the world of a flood? What happened to the dinosaurs? Does it really matter? Doesn't the flood story tell us that God hates unrighteousness. He hates sin. He knows it's destructive to mankind. And there's a story there that the world was destroyed because of sin and was raised to have an opportunity for a new sense of righteousness. Does it really matter if Jonah was swallowed by a whale, a big fish, or whether it is a metaphor, whether the entire story, does it, can it contain truth without being literally true? And once again, I point us toward all the parables of Jesus, which contained maybe the most important truths and ethical teachings that Jesus had for his Christian followers. Were they literally true? No. But were they certainly true? Absolutely. No question about it. And maybe, again, the most important truths we could ever receive. In fact, when we look at Jesus we see in his wisdom as a teacher the need to move into highly symbolic, parabolic literature to leave behind for us the most essential truths of our Christian lives and our Christian behaviors. So as we close the show today, we'll probably revisit other misunderstandings about the Bible and how they can be very dangerous to interpreting and finding the true meaning of what the Bible really means. We'll revisit this, but again, don't want this show to become a Bible study, but the Bible is an important tool for all Christians. In the weeks ahead in Christian living that counts, I, as your host, Steve Russell, want to lead you to investigate all kinds of things where our lives can be applied to the broken world around us and where we as Christians 
with renewed lives and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit within us can move ourselves into these places and make a very positive difference in the world around us, in people's lives around us. We see it, we witness it every day, but we just don't have enough of it. You know, we, we often talk uh, in fear about uh, uh, the atomic weaponry and, and the terrible destruction that mankind could wreak uh, upon the world if, if we unleashed all the bombs from all the nations and we live in, in, in fear uh, of that kind of thing. But I ran across a statistic that I, I came to me over 40 years ago, and that was how many times the American farmer could feed the entire world if we opened up the productivity of just the American farmers. And that is a positive statistic along the same lines. Instead of being fearing, instead of fearing that we might be blown up 10 times over, I think the statistic said that the American farmer could feed the world's entire population if we unleashed the power of farming here and the agricultural power of our country, we could feed every human being over 30 times. So uh, as a very positive statistic to that, we want to be very positive about what we, we are doing in the world. We have an opportunity as Christians to live these positive, productive, very, in li- very um, empowered lives that make a difference in the world around us, in the world that we can reach through internet radio, through the world that we can reach through all the channels of communication and opportunities that we have available to us today. Join us again, Christian Living That Counts, as we explore ways to make that difference with our renewed lives in a broken world. I'll see you on the radio again. Steve Russell returns next week at the same time discussing how renewed lives can make a difference in a broken world. Join us again for Christian living that counts.